you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. You can also support the podcast on Patreon. You can support the show with either a recurring or a one-time donation, which helps pay for various parts of the show. And finally, you can purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, face masks, you name it, on the Teespring store if you're inclined. My name is Anders Halverson, and my guest today is Dr. Joe Anderson. Joe is a research scientist with the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife in Olympia, Washington. He got his BS from Stanford in 2001. And while he was there, he did a summer internship in Yellowstone National Park that inspired him to pursue a career in fishery science. He went on to get a master's degree and PhD from the School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences at University of Washington in 2011, and he's been in that area ever since. He currently leads a monitoring program for salmon and steelhead in Puget Sound, studying patterns of abundance, productivity, and life history diversity in the Salmonids. His research aims to understand how habitat, hatchery, and harvest management affect salmon population viability. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you, Anders. Thanks for the invitation. It's good to be here. Did my bio cover your life to date? Pretty That's well. my life story. Yeah, very thorough. <laughs> I am sort of curious about what your internship in Yellowstone was all about. Oh, that was fascinating. That was such one of the best summers of my life. Um, fresh out of college, packed up my uh, Nissan pickup truck, drove from California to Wyoming, and spent 12 weeks with the aquatic resources team uh, led by Todd Cool, who's still there leading the sort of fisheries group in Yellowstone National Park. Most of my days were spent out on Lake Yellowstone netting non-native lake trout. That was sort of in the early stages of the lake trout suppression program, which uh-huh. I've sort of tracked through his research over the years. But we also spent time out um, electrofishing the streams of Yellowstone National Park, trying to get a handle on the distribution of native species, looking for West Slope cutthroat, and just trying to understand where you know the native, native species were located. And it just really opened my eyes to this field of fisheries biology, you know, while I was at Stanford. I w- I've always been interested in science, you know, pursuing biology was a, a natural fit for me, but I didn't quite realize there was this entire field dedicated to fish populations and how they interact with their environment and how to manage fisheries and really, really inspired my sort of career path from from that point forward. Oh, it sounds great. So what I'd like to focus on today is the Elwha River, which you have been intimately involved with. And I think maybe we should begin with just describing the Elwha, where it is and what the watershed is like, and then we'll move on and go through the history from there. Does that sound good? That sounds great. Yeah. So can you describe the Elwha to us? Yeah, so the Elwha River is located on the northern Olympic Peninsula, so sort of the western edge of Washington State. It drains north from really the, the peaks of the Olympic Mountains and, and empties into the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And if I was going to sort of describe the river itself in a nutshell, it's I would say it's short and steep. So it's um, a relatively short river, at least compared to, you know, say some of our longer rivers in, in the interior Columbia Basin, but it's really steep. The river is kind of a series of alluvial floodplains would provide tremendous spawning and rearing habitat bisected by these really steep canyons with white water and boulders and really kind of sets the context for a lot of the sort of fish populations in the area. And much of the watershed is in Olympic National Park, correct? That's right. Sort of a defining feature of the of the river is the, the majority of the, the watershed is located in an Olymp- Olympic National Park. 
So let's sort of go through the history of the river now. So let's start 500 years ago. Who was there? The lower Alwaklalam tribe uh, inhabited the, the river basin. That's sort of their namesake area that they inhabited. Um, and so they were the humans present there. And then for fish populations, we had tremendous diversity of salmon populations. A lot of the historical records from the um, first Euro-American folks that arrived talk about Chinook salmon, coho salmon, evidence of steelhead. We know that there were pink salmon. We know that there were chum salmon, as well as uh, anadromous bull trout. So really the full cast of characters for the, at least the salmonids that we're typically interested in out here in, in Western Washington. Okay. And so then I'm going to say, let's move forward to about 120 years ago or so. What What happens then? Yes. So um, Port Angeles, the town was sort of an uh, expanding city. And so in order to provide as a power source, uh, Elwha Dam was built at about uh, river kilometer eight or so. And so that dam was built 1910, 1912, uh, some records show it being completed 1913, and blocked salmon and, and steelhead and other anadromous species from migrating upriver. Uh, in addition to Elwha Dam, a second dam was built further upstream at Glines Canyon, so known as Glines Canyons Dam. That one was completed in, in 1927. And in addition to the sort of fish passage blockage, those dams also interrupted the sort of natural river processes, the flow of sediment and woody debris. A lot of that sediment was captured in the reservoirs that were behind both of those dams. How tall are the dams? Don't know off the top of my head. I, I want to say Glines Canyon was on the order of 30 meters or so. I believe Elwha Dam was a bit, a bit shorter. So there, there were pretty big structures. Yeah, they were sort dams. of, yeah, they're sort of right in canyons. So not a lot of space. And, you know, at that point in time, we weren't necessarily thinking about fish ladders and fish passage. That just wasn't part of the way you know, sort of we approached uh, our interactions with the environment. Despite the fact that the fisheries were obviously very important in that area, even at that time. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So um, fishing certainly had a big place in the culture of uh, Western Washington residents at that time. And obviously for the, the tribes that inhabited the river, um, it was a huge part of, of culture. But, you know, I think the sort of thought about the way that we interact with the environment and the, the need to preserve fish for future generations mm -hmm. and, and the, the degree of impact that humans could have on nature. And, you know, at that point, it was sort of viewed as this bountiful resource, almost limitless in its, in its abundance. And, you know, that sort of drove how we, uh, you know, constructed and expanded our, our cities and roadways and, and built dams. Yeah. I think just to chime in on that, you know, Othniel C. Marsh was sort of, a guy who's considered the founder of the conservation movement in this country because of his book, Man and Nature, which I think he published in 1864. But before that, he wrote a report about fisheries in Vermont. And it's sort of fascinating to read because he says, this is the guy that's considered the founder of the conservation movement. And he says, of course, we can't stop building dams or using our rivers as sewers to dump all the effluent from our factories because that's progress. That's what we're going to have. So leading up to our next topic, he says, you know what the solution is to all of this? It's hatcheries. <laughs> yes. It's... And so it sounds like that's what they latched onto there in, on the Elwha as well. Is that right? Yeah. So um, it, it varied somewhat by species. The program that I'm most familiar with is the hatchery program for Chinook salmon. And I think that um, following the construction of the dam, there was a recognition that this is going to put these populations in, at, at, in peril, at risk of, of extinction. 
And so the, um, the hatchery program was essentially started as kind of an environmental mitigation measure, you know, to try to preserve what was recognized as a unique population. And so I've been sort of digging through older papers and I can find reference to the, the Washington Department of Fisheries initiating a hatchery program for that purpose around 1930. I believe that there were hatchery releases in the river prior to that. And I've, I've got some more sort of historical research and digging to do to really sort of get to the bottom of when it really started and who was responsible and what that kind of looked like. But I think it was 1930 when at least the state government really sort of created a dedicated program to, to, to use hatchery production year in and year out to, you know, to produce fish as a way to sort of um, counteract the, the dams that were in place. And, you know, again, in addition to the lack of access to the habitat, as time proceeded, you know, the habitat prior downstream of the dams became progressively worse. You know, even there was only eight kilometers, but, you know, the sediment that wasn't allowed to sort of transmit past the dams, the downstream of those dams, the, the spawning habit turned into bowling balls and it's just not, not good habitat for fish. So hatchery had a role there. So anyway, aside from the fact that the riverbed was damaged, the hatcheries were just a perfect cure-all and they solved all the problems and everybody was happy ever since, right? Well, not, not exactly. <laughs> I think um, in this particular case, you know, there was a recognition of the impact that the dams were having on the river and uh, the lack of access to this phenomenal habitat in a national park was um, obviously having a big impact on the on the salmon and steelhead populations. And at the same time, the sort of initial purpose of the dam, the power generation as Port Angeles grew, that became sort of less and less important to the community. And so, you know, really the lower Elwha Klallam tribe spearheaded this dam removal sort of effort, getting a, a broad coalition of of sort of river restoration enthusiasts and, and, and uh, governments to pursue uh, dam removal as a means to restore the, the native ecosystem and leading to the passage of what we call the Elwha Act by U.S. Congress in the early 1990s, which really sort of set the expectation that dam removal was the long-term solution to river restoration. And how long was the Lower Elwha Klallam tribe trying to convince people to get rid of the dams before that 1992 act? Well, I've talked to a gentleman by the name of Robert Ellison, tribal member, and I mean, this man essentially dedicated his life to, to kind of making this happen. He told me stories about when he returned home in, in the 1980s that he sort of made it his his mission. And so that act in the early 1990s, there was, you know, a decade or more of sort of lobbying and conversations and push to get the sort of support needed to make it happen prior to that. So it was a long time coming. It was not just sort of an overnight realization. So there were not that many dam removal projects going on at that time. Was this one of the first and biggest? And Yeah. So to my knowledge, at, at present, this is the largest dam removal project in, at, certainly in the United States. I think that there has been a lot of uh, removal of smaller dams, particularly in places like the Midwest, but nothing really of this scale. Um, it, it really sort of just in terms of the size of the dams, the size of the river, the size of the reservoirs behind the dams, the amount of sediment that was stored behind the dams, you know, it's really unprecedented. And hopefully it's, uh, sets the stage. We're learning a lot about how this can proceed and how the environment and fish populations can respond. And that helps provide information to sort of consider other, other potential actions elsewhere. Okay. So the act was passed in 92 and 
it was not until 2011, if I'm right, that people began removing these dams. Yes, and again, this is this is well before my time, so I'm 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 sketchy or hazy on the details, but I think a lot of that was essentially planning what it would take to make this happen. The sort of the financial resources needed to to pursue the dam removal, a lot of work with the the local community about what it would mean um, in terms of the power as well as the disappearance of the reservoirs, as well as just sort of, I think at that point, the community, that's sort of how they identified their their local environment. And so mm-hmm. I think there was a lot of work to sort of explore the values of a, of a restored river system and really get the support needed to kind of, and the planning done to make it happen. So yeah, from 1992, it wasn't until fall of 2011 until the dam removal really effort really started in earnest. Okay. So what does that entail, removing a dam that big? Let's see. There were sort of slightly different processes for the two dams. The lowermost dam, Elwa Dam, you know, essentially the construction company was able to sort of set up a system where they kind of had two channels and they could sort of put the river in one channel, excavate down and on the other side, and then flip the river back over and sort of, sort of flip flop back and forth while the water was flowing on one side. They could sort of excavate, remove the dam on the other side. And that process actually proceeded fairly quickly. By spring of 2012, Elwha Dam was was removed. The further upstream dam, Glines Canyon Dam, uh, perhaps a bit more dramatic, they essentially had an excavator on a barge in the reservoir. And on this excavator, it had one of those sort of hydraulic jackhammer attachments. And they would slowly draw down the reservoir. And then the, this excavator with a jackhammer would kind of work back and forth and just chip away at it. Glides Canyon Dam took a li- little bit longer to remove, just some, some complications there. But it was, I believe it was 2014 when it was sort of finally out of the way. That's actually pretty quick, three years from start to finish. Sure, yeah, considering how long the dams were in place. And yeah, remarkably quick, kind of a, think of it sort of like a big pulse uh, disturbance there. Yeah, so let's get into that. So before this dam gets removed, and I know you weren't there, but there are a lot of unknowns, especially a dam of this size. What's the biggest concern about what might happen? Yeah, I think the the sediment that was stored in the reservoirs behind the, the dams was uh, uh, just a major part of the story. You know, rivers erode the the mountains and the valleys. That's it's a natural process. All the material is transmitted downstream, and it sort of stops being transported downstream when it encounters slow water like these these reservoirs. So in this case there was on the order of 21 million cubic meters of sediment stored behind these dams. And again, I I wasn't really in this sort of discussion about it was before my time like what the what the various options were for how to handle that amount of material, but but essentially the final decision was that they would draw the reservoir down and then let the river move it on its own. And that's what it did. Yeah. Okay, so you get all this 21 million cubic meters of sediment. Yeah. All of a sudden, within a, within a year or two, pulsing downstream. So actually, only about two-thirds of it ended up being eroded. So let's see. So about two-thirds of the total sediment in the reservoirs was transported downstream. Of that total, about 90% of it was actually transported all the way to the mouth of the river and the sort of near shore habitat. And about 10% of it was deposited in the river environment, the river channel, site floodplain channels. So it's just just waves and waves of sediment moving downstream, just filling in pools, constantly shifting channels, an incredibly sort of unstable river environment, just as this material just pulsed down the river. It, 
It took a few years. I mean, it was probably 2016, 2017 before it seemed as though the river had kind of started to settle down and and started to reach something approaching maybe a, a new equilibrium. So definitely a major disturbance, but one that, you know, largely was transient, you know, a few years, not a few decades. But for a few years, what did, what impact did that have on the fish and the, the macroinvertebrates? Yes. So anything downstream of the dam in the main stem habitat, the river was first turbid enough that it was approaching lethal levels, like would actually sort of irritate the gills on a fish to the point that they would, would actually have trouble breathing. And that sort of went up and down. There were periods of higher and lower, you know, as the stream flow went up and down. But at times it, it did approach lethal levels. And then if you think about the habitat that fish need to spawn and rear, you know, fish uh, or salmon will dig nests and deposit their eggs in the gravel. And they need a period of several months for those gravels to be stable. And in this case, the river was so unstable that, you know, we think survival, at least in those areas downstream of the dams, was probably pretty poor just because of the sort of movement of of gravel and having an impact on egg survival. Now, there were areas, what we call refugia, where salmon and fish were able to get to that were unimpacted by the dam. So there was actually a couple tributaries, Little River and Indian Creek. So these are low, they enter the main stem Elwha River between the two dams and they were flowing clear and sort of had their their typical sort of stable uh, or as stable as rivers can be in the northwest in the in the winter. And actually, in some cases, fish were able to find these tributaries, clear water tributaries on their own. Um, in other cases, fish that were encountered in some of the hatchery operations were actually transported there and sort of placed there to spawn naturally as a way to kind of get them out of harm's way while the, the river was so inhospitable, difficult place to live. And then what about the macroinvertebrates? The, so the sediment essentially wiped out the populations of the macroinvertebrates. Some really interesting work looking at macroinvertebrate populations showed that they were essentially gone, just a, a fraction of their former abundance for that period at the height of dam removal impacts, but have since bounced back. And that's a sign that the river is showing some resilience and the species that inhabit it and then part of the food web are able to recolonize once that the river calms down a bit. Okay, so this was a potentially pretty devastating event, this this dam removal. Despite the long-term goal of restoring the fisheries, it was pretty devastating to them in the short term. That's right. And I think that's a really sort of uh, important way to look at the situation here is what we have essentially like a short-term high-magnitude disturbance that has the potential to lead to poor survival. But the long-term outlook is really one of a tremendous benefit. And again, it's not just that we're opening up that habitat to salmon and steelhead and other migratory fish, but also that we're restoring these natural river processes and allowing the river to access its floodplain. And and when rivers flood, while it might be poor for salmon survival in the short term, in the long term, it helps create and maintain diverse salmon habitats and encouraging recruitment of large woody debris into the rivers and creating pools and and multi-thread channels that create the sort of spawning and, and rearing areas that we need. Okay, so on that note, what have the results been? Now we're, what, about seven to 10 years from the removal of dams. What are the results? Yeah, so varies a bit by species, but I think the most encouraging sign is that almost all species have accessed the area upstream of Elwha Dam pretty quickly. I mean, within a, a year or two, Chinook salmon, coho salmon, steelhead, bull trout, even pink salmon 
have been spotted upstream of Elwha Dam, and many of those individuals are, are species have been are upstream of Glines Canyon Dam as well. And so, you know, what we call the lower river below the dams, and then what we call the middle river between the two dams, really pretty um, rapid spatial expansion into that area. Now, we haven't seen Certain species have made it really far upstream into the, what we call the upper watershed upstream of, of Glines Canyon Dam. So steelhead and bull trout, for example, and we have this sort of remarkable resurgence of a summer steelhead run. Yeah, let's talk more about that. Can you tell us why that's remarkable? Well, the, so in, our, in steelhead in Washington, we sort of have recognition of two different adult migration strategies. We have winter steelhead that enter the river with mature gonads in February, March, April and sort of spawn in the spring. And then we also have uh, summer runs that enter the river typically in the summer prior to their spawning. So they might enter the river nine months before they spawn. They might enter in June, July, August, September, but not spawn till the following spring. And so they're really kind of different beasts if you think about their life history strategy. And in the Elwha, there really wasn't much of a recognition of a native summer steelhead run in the river prior to dam removal. Um, and yet after dam removal, we have this run sort of springing up. And uh, some of my colleagues that have been uh, just doing remarkable work in terms of putting in the time to do the, the fish surveys to really document distribution and abundance have been seeing hundreds of summer steelhead, you know, essentially all the way up to the headwaters of the river. So we've seen a resurgence of a life history strategy that didn't exist in that river for a hundred years, potentially. Yeah, that's right. And um, really exciting. There's a, a geneticist, her name's Alex Frake. She's done some remarkable work with the sort of steelhead analysis. She's shown that it looks as though that of the downstream migrating steelhead smolts that were produced sort of in this sort of during and post dam removal period, a lot of their ancestry is related to resident trout that were upstream of the dams prior to their removal. So what that suggests is that the populations of resident rainbow trout for a hundred years while those dams are in place sort of harbored this latent ability to make that seaward migration. And then once the dams are out of place, they sort of jumped right in and were able to resume that, that life history strategy. That is really, really remarkable. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. really remarkable. Okay, how do you go about monitoring this? What's your What are the techniques that the various agencies involved have been using? Great question. So if we think about abundance, the number of fish returning to the river, um, we've got two tools that are, are really essential. So one, for the uh, abundance of adults, the sort of interagency collaborative team has been using a sonar system. And so this is kind of what amounts to a fancy fish finder like you'd find on your fishing boat. It, it emits sound waves and able to essentially produce imagery of fish swimming past a fixed point. Now, this proved remarkably successful during the period of dam removal when the river was really turbid. You know, essentially visibility to the naked eye was, was zero. You, you couldn't see into the river, yet the acoustic waves were able to detect fish swimming past. So... That program has been going for about 10 years, led by a scientist named uh, Keith Denton. He works with colleagues from the Lower Elwha Clallam tribe on that project. He's been able to produce an abundant estimate of adult Chinook for about the last 10 years. Um, steelhead as well, winter steelhead for about eight years or so. And then recently expanded the program to include coho salmon as well. And how do you distinguish the different species through sonars? Is that just based on timing? 
Uh, a bit on timing, but they also do a, a species composition netting program. So those times of the year where there's overlap in the different species that are coming through, they actually use a sort of a tangle net and, and use that to determine um, well, what proportion of these fish wing pass are steelhead versus Chinook? So you can imagine for winter steelhead that are late, maybe entering the river in May or June, start to overlap with some of the earlier arriving Chinook salmon. And so by getting your actual hands on fish, you can start to sort of parse out the imagery targets who's swimming upstream. Right. Okay. So the sonar is one tool. Another really important tool is the smolt trap. So this captures downstream migrating salmon and steelhead smolts. It's operated by the Lower Elwha-Klallam tribe. And then based on the raw catch of fish, um, we can use some mark recapture approaches. So mark a known number of fish, put them back upstream, release them, and that will give you uh, an estimate of trap efficiency. So what is the, the proportion of yep. fish that you're catching, which allows you to expand your catch to an abundance estimate. In some cases, right. you're releasing fish from the hatchery. If we don't get our hands on too many, if catches are low, part of the program, they actually have traps in those two tributaries upstream as well. Those provide additional, what we call a mark group that allows us to estimate trap efficiency. And so those two approaches, the sonar for an adult abundance, the small trap for the juvenile abundance, let us talk about freshwater productivity, how many juveniles are being produced per spawner. And on the back half, we can also estimate smolt to dot return rate or the total. Mm -hmm. We can essentially divide the life cycle into the freshwater portion and the marine portion. And that's a helpful tool to sort of get at levels of productivity and survival and helping us understand population abundance. And then you also are, I don't know if you did this, but the agencies also did some red counts and some snorkeling. Is that right? That's right. Red counts. Uh, in this case, because we have the sonar abundance estimate, we really primarily use those red counts to talk about spatial distribution. So where in the river are fish spawning? And so what we've seen so far, at least for the Chinook salmon, is that they are occupying spawning habitats throughout the lower and the middle river. We typically see uh, Chinook salmon spawning in what the former reservoir immediately upstream of, of Glines Canyon Dam, what we call the Mills Reach, former Lake Mills. Mm -hmm. But we haven't really seen many Chinook salmon upstream of that. You know, there, like I said, at the outset here, there's a series of canyons, including a big one we called Grand Canyon of the Elwha. And we just have not seen many um, Chinook salmon spawning upstream of that location, despite the fact that there appears to be high quality habitat. Up Is there. that surprising so th based on what we know about Chinook salmon? Perhaps a little surprising. You know, I think there's always the hope that the salmon are going to kind of occupy all the habitat and niche right from the outset. I guess in my in my opinion, I always sort of expected that this is going to be kind of a long-term process. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. And I think what's interesting is you sort of start to see the differences among the species, whereas the steelhead, the summer steelhead and those bull trout, like I mentioned, sort of immediately went to the upper reaches of the watershed. You know, other species just, they haven't, haven't done that yet. So it's certainly something the group's keeping, the interagency sort of research team is keeping an eye on. And, you know, over time, I would, I would expect that distribution to gradually start creeping upwards. Right. Well, so what's the generation time for these fish? Coho salmon, three years. Chinook salmon, three to five years. Steelhead, three to five years. Pink salmon, two years. So in other words, it's expected that it's going to take at least five to 10 to 20 years before, because of this cumulative effect of multiple generations colonizing new areas. 
That's right. That's right. And if you just stop and think for a minute about where we're at right now, so dam removal completed in 2014, and I sort of mentioned that the river sort of seemed to calm down around 2016, 2017. So we're almost just now getting to the point that fish who had access to a relatively stable river as it started to calm down in, in say, 2017 or so, that their offspring, at least for, say, Chinook salmon or steelhead, would be returning in 2021, 2022, 2023. So in my opinion, like the next few years mm-hmm. are really kind of a critical juncture because now, now we're at that point where about a post, you know, generation after, you know, sort of the, the major disturbance. And so, you know, fingers crossed, optimistic that the, some of the trends we've seen, we have seen an uptick in natural production, especially for Chinook salmon. That smolt trap has shown that the last few sort of spawning cycles, um, we're seeing a lot more juveniles down at the trap than we had in, in prior years. And that's really encouraging for the, for the future. And then in addition to that, there's, let's talk about the hatcheries a little bit. So are the, have the agencies continued to operate the hatcheries? Yes, we have. So the hatchery program, again, that I'm most familiar with is the, the Chinook salmon program. It's continued to operate during dam removal, you know, in the context of the dam removal itself. It provided essentially an insurance policy. And I think what's really important to recognize with Elwha Chinook salmon is that despite the fact that the population has been on, you know, largely sustained by hatchery production for about a hundred years, it is derived from the native Elwha population. We know that the hatchery managers over the years recognized that the Elwha sort of offered a, a pretty unique population. There were aspects of its life history that were, were unique, including really large body size sort of legendary stories of Elwha Chinook exceeding 75 pounds or so. Mm-hmm. And we also know that in addition to sort of avoiding non-local uh, releases, so fish of different origins released in the Elwha River, if we look at the genetic analysis of the population today, it looks different. It's different than a lot of the other Chinook salmon populations in Puget Sound, where a legacy of interbasin transfers of hatchery mm-hmm. fish created right. this situation of genetic homogenization that's pretty common in a lot of the other populations of Puget Sound. And so the fact that we have a population that is, is largely derived from the native historic population is really kind of special and not a lot of places. That's not necessarily the case everywhere we look. So the hatchery, essentially, during dam removal, again, we have this big disturbance, provided uh, kind of an insurance policy against the most impactful potential survival impacts. And Was that controversial at all, keeping those hatcheries open? Did anybody advocate for <laughs> shutting those down right away? Uh, there, it was to some extent controversial. There was actually a court case, some legal action. I wasn't really involved, but that was sort of talking about all the sort of hatchery programs. Because? Sort of taking exception with them. Because there's, well, not all the hatchery programs, but obviously, and I know you know quite a bit about this, there are, you describe the hatcheries as being an insurance policy while the dams were being removed. But at the same time, obviously, hatcheries can be detrimental to wild populations for several reasons. Maybe you could enumerate those. Yeah. So it's, again, it's kind of a short-term insurance policy, but there's a long-term risk. And so, you know, one of the risks of salmon hatcheries that we know a lot about are genetic risks. So I already talked a little bit about homogenization. That wasn't such an issue with Elwha. As I said, they were able to maintain that unique genetic lineage in this case. But it's important to recognize that the river is a different environment than the hatchery. 
And natural selection over time will start to favor traits that are advantageous in the hatchery as opposed to the river. And if that selection accumulates over the years, it can lead to actual sort of evolutionary changes in the population. And so what this can ultimately result in is that fish born in a hatchery are then re-released into the river. They're not as adapted to the river as they were prior to the generations of of hatchery production and can actually reduce the fitness and survival of fish in the river. And so especially in this case where we know that somewhat by necessity – the population was dominated by hatchery production for a hundred years. You sort of have this question of, are they, can they almost readapt to the river? Mm-hmm. And to me, it's one of the really unique and important questions in my field as we think about salmon recovery and what it takes to really restore salmon populations. You know, in yeah, this, this case, is going to be fascinating to watch over the next five, 10, 20 years. Yeah. So my team, we've been out there tracking the hatchery mark rates. So of of all the adult salmon that returned to the river, how many of them, what proportion of them were produced in a hatchery? Mm-hmm. And this just sort of demographic accounting is really sort of an essential tool to start to understand differences in productivity and survival between hatchery and natural populations. And what we've seen is for the last 10 years, the return to the river continues to be dominated by hatchery origin fish to the tune of 95% or so of the total adults returning to the river are, are hatchery origin. Is it too early to compare that to the smolts that are going out? Uh, good question. So, I mean, we have numbers from that we know how many ha- fish we release from the hatchery. Yeah. Usually that's sort of two to three million. In recent years, the, the smolt production has been hundreds of thousands to even approaching a million in, in one of our more productive years. Wow. So, okay. But we also know by using the abundance information from the sonar, we've got the hatchery mark information that I just described. And then we also, when we're looking for these hatchery marks, we also pull scales from the fish. We use those scales to determine the age. And then we can do what's called a run reconstruction. For all the adults that return in any given year, we can determine which year their parents spawned. Mm. And so what we can do is essentially a a spawner-to-spawner productivity analysis. So for Mm -hmm. all the fish that spawn naturally in the river, how many adults are returning in the next generation? When we do that, we see that the fish that are spawning in the river aren't even close to replacing themselves. So if every fish that spawned in the river produced one adult that was returning in a subsequent generation, we'd call that replacement. Mm-hmm. You know, they're essentially self-sustaining. And so in the 10 or so cohorts we've, we've been able to track, none of them approached that that replacement mark. And in fact, the average productivity was, I think it was 0.15. Oh, wow. So 15 hundredths of, of one, so far below replacement. So how do you explain that? What's What's going on there? Well, so most of those cohorts were spawning in the river in the period before and during dam removal. So we're just now starting to get to that point where, say, adults that spawned in 2017, when the river was maybe a little bit more mild and it's sort of inhospitable in terms of its spawning and rearing conditions, their offspring, their five-year-old offspring, will be returning in 2022. So again, we're just now getting to that point where the adults that are returning, we might start to see potentially maybe higher survival if fish are having better success in those more stable river habitats after you know the major effects of dam removal. What impacts does the fishery have, the salmon fishery that's in Puget Sound and elsewhere? So another problem with hatcheries is that they enable a fishery based on the hatchery fish, but a lot of the wild fish are going to get caught up in that same fishery so that you're going to get fewer wild fish than you would if you didn't have any fisheries at all. 
Yes, absolutely. Sort of the classic issue of mixed stock fisheries. Uh, a lot of our salmon fisheries are targeting the abundant hatchery origin populations that can sustain relatively high levels of fishing, but they also encounter the co-mingled, much lower abundant wild populations. And in fact, it's often those encounters with the, the wild populations that are those encounter rates are what require us to restrict fisheries mm -hmm. rather than the sort of actual take on the target hatchery origin fish. Now, the Elwha is a really unique case, and I actually think this is sort of one of the more important storylines that doesn't quite get as much of the headlines as the dam removal, but there's been a complete and total fishing moratorium in the Elwha River, what we call the kind of terminal area, mm -hmm. you know, right at the river itself since the start of dam removal. And so I think, in my opinion, sort of that total absence of fishing is one of the contributing factors to why we've, we're seeing the response post dam removal. And while, again, the dam removal is kind of the headline, the fishing moratorium is a big part of the story. And hmm. it's sort of causing a number of us that collaborate in this project to think about integrative approaches of habitat restoration and fishery management as building on one another as a way to promote salmon recovery. Yeah, it's a complicated world, isn't it? Yeah. Well, so what's the plan going forward with the hatcheries? Are they going to, is it keep them open for the foreseeable future or is yeah. that under discussion? Yeah. So the, the long-term plan, the long-term goal is to phase out the hatcheries and, and sort of transition to self-sustaining uh, natural production that can support fisheries, you know, without the need for hatchery supplementation. And so that situation where we're essentially trying to almost wean the population off this demographic support is a pretty common one in our region. And what I'm excited about in the case of the Elwha, you know, is that we have this habitat that's been protected in a national park for so long. And that sort of to create that transition, obviously you need high quality habitat. And in my opinion, we, we have that here. So this is a, to me, a really important test case. And I think that question of does this population need to readapt to the river after a hundred years of hatchery production in the case of Chinook salmon, we know from the last 10 years that the demographics are dominated by hatchery origin fish. You would, might suspect that that selection towards the hatchery environment might be relatively strong, you know, if you just look at those two pieces of information. And so how can the, the fish readapt to the river? Is that something that needs to happen? And at some point, there need to be some segregation where mm -hmm. the hatchery fish are having less sort of demographic genetic interaction with the natural origin or wild fish so that the selection that does occur when the fish are spawning in the river and the juveniles are rearing in the river, when they're eating sort of native natural aquatic invertebrates, that that selection starts to take hold and actually mm -hmm. promote changes in the population. And so if the natural productivity shows a market increase and you start to get a little more demographic balance and that proportion of adults returning to the river starts to swing towards natural production, that would be one way. But as time goes on, you know, we're going to have to continue looking at the demographics and think about whether changes to the hatchery program are warranted if the data tell us they are. You know, the one of the cornerstone concepts for the approaches to management is thinking about different phases of recovery. So at the outset, when dam removal impacts were really big, we talk about preservation. Sort of the goal is to preserve the unique genetic lineage of fish populations. Next, there's a period of recolonization where fish sort of need to reoccupy that habitat that they hadn't had access to. And then we talk about a local adaptation phase where the goal is really to let the river guide the evolutionary trajectory of the population. And so we got to think carefully about the best practices for hatcheries and fisheries, for that matter, that will let that happen and move towards that self-sustaining, viable, natural population. 
And that's what's so interesting about this Elwa project, because it's really one of the biggest and first places where this natural experiment is going on. That's right. I think I would say when I step back, I think what we've learned so far, you know, the river environment itself, it was a massive impact, but it was transient. It seems to have subsided. I think that the fish response, I mean, it's going to play out over decades, over the course of my career. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Yeah. What a cool thing. So any lessons for other dam removal projects from the Elwha? Yeah, I would say one of the most exciting parts about working at the Elwha is the people I work with, the other scientists from the other agencies. So establishing a strong sort of interagency team, it's really just inspiring. And it motivates me to do my best work when I see the thought, the care, the effort that scientists from the National Park Service, from the Lower Elwha Clallam Tribe, from the National Marine Fisheries Service, from USGS, from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, all of us are kind of putting our heads together, really trying to be a team player, to consider different methods to sort of each have our sort of own projects, but communicate regularly and do our best to synthesize results, what we're learning across these different projects. So that part, I think, is really, really essential. Have a couple different tools in your toolbox. I think we've tried a few things that maybe didn't work out so well. For a while, we were operating a weir as a way to sample fish on their way upstream, but it was just too difficult to do in such a big river. And so we sort of moved on from that. But at the same time, we had that sonar project that was able to to estimate abundance and just sort of being flexible and, and kind of letting the river and the fish tell you where to go and what the questions that are going to be most important and just being out there in the field too. I mean, I, I don't get to do a lot of field work these days, but I managed to carve out September for Chinook salmon surveys and sampling carcasses. And, and every time I'm out there, I get new ideas and, yeah. and just working with the team is just a, it's just a great place to be. Best part of the job. Yeah. Okay. So we have, time has flown by and I think we need to wrap this up. There are a traditional five questions that come at the end of every fisheries podcast. Are you ready for them? I'm ready. Okay. Number one, what is your favorite fish? Oh, salmon. (laughs) Okay. Number two, what is your favorite memory from your career so far? It's got to be going out in Lake Yellowstone every morning on those foggy mornings, just heading out on the boat and just that first realization, like, wow, just opening my eyes to this entire field and just starting to kind of dream and think big about what could be next. Okay. What is your dream job or location? I think I'm in it. I love my work. I think I love living in Olympia. I love the nature of my job. I think over the course of my career, I found myself just gravitating towards applied questions, the really critical questions for conservation and management, really interested in hatcheries and fisheries and habitat restoration. And I'm right there doing it in this job and and wouldn't have it any other way. That's great. All right. If money was not an issue, what is a project you'd like to work on? I would like to spend more time in the upper Elwha. You know, it's a wilderness area. You can't drive there. And it takes a lot of time, effort to get up into the backcountry, transporting gear with mule trains. I've done it a couple of times. I carried way too much weight in my backpack, nearly broke my back. And it's just a beautiful place. And I wish wish I could spend more time up. Okay. You can buy a lot of mules. Buy, (laughs) yes. Yeah. And and mule mule lead experts. (laughs) There you go. All right. And finally... If there is one point or principle that you could program into everyone's head, what would it be? Hmm. Be open-minded. 
think about different perspectives. I think a lot of the you know controversy, we talked a little bit about the controversy surrounding hatcheries. I think there's a lot of deep-rooted values in fisheries and the way that people view and, and look at the environment and just try to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, see where they're coming from and allow yourself to be influenced by by the way people think and the way they speak about their, their careers and their, their life's work. Okay, great. All right. So if people want to get in touch with you to get more information, how would they do that? Well, you can email me. My email is joseph, J-O-S-E-P-H dot Anderson, A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N at D-F-W dot W-A dot G-O-V. Okay. Well, thank you, Joe. This has been a fascinating interview. I wish I could we, I could go on asking you questions for another hour, I think, but I think we have to wrap it up. So thank you very much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Anders. I appreciate your interest in, in my work. It's been fun. Great. Okay, so this has been Anders Halverson talking to Joe Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram through the at fisheries pod, or you can send me an email. My email is anders at andershalverson.com. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a contribution through Patreon, or you can buy Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers on Teespring. Thanks again, and don't forget the main point. You need to be open and flexible when you're doing this sort of research.